0: Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lippman and Pastor Trey Graham. We
1: do thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. As always, I'm joined by my friend Rabbi Dove Lippmann. Shalom, Rabbi, how are you, my friend?
2: Shalom, Pastor Graham, and thank God doing great. How's everything in
1: Texas? it is beautiful because the cowboys are well not so hot but they did beat the redskins and the, the army black knights are 8 and 2 it's a good year for army football
2: yeah the redskins cowboys situation is one which uh, we've uh, tried to avoid uh, talking about actually no 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 you've to start, tried to yeah. avoid <laughs> i've tried to avoid that's very much true um here's the thing we're people of faith right so as people of faith we recognize that even teams that can't stop other teams uh somehow miraculously they can still win ball games so even if we have a porous defense and even if we have an offense that can't really score somehow the lord could come and help us win and uh, we're going to the super bowl my friend
1: is that a prophecy from my rabbi friend
2: uh, no, because I, I don't want to be <laughs> exposed as a false prophet. Okay, uh, okay. I, I know that we're not heading there, but...
1: Uh, you I know, think it's that's nice a dream is what that is.
2: That's right. That's okay. a dream. Uh, bring me back to the 1980s. But uh, in any event, uh, both teams are, are pretty closely uh, connected in terms of their records. and It'll be interesting to see how it plays out.
1: Well, we could talk football for a long time, but I think folks want to listen to a little more important stuff than that. And there's a news story that's going on in the Holy Land. It's a political and a military and a strategic story. And of course, we're going to get to the weekly Torah portion in a couple of minutes. What we promise to bring our listeners every week is a study of the Word of God walking through the parashah, the Torah portion. But I'm going to ask my friend, Rabbi Lippman, who lives in Israel, to help us better understand a story that the news has been reporting, and that is... Israel military chose to blast or destroy some tunnels that were being dug from under the border between the Gaza Strip and what's called Israel proper, and some Palestinian terrorists from Gaza were killed in this explosion, and there were apparently seven Palestinians killed and 12 injured in this explosion of the tunnel, and it was done for obvious security reasons. You can't have people who seek your harm sneaking into your country. Set the scene for us, please.
2: So I'm going to actually jump to today's scene and then work backwards. The scene throughout Israel today is that we have this Iron Dome missile shield system with, with thanks to God and thanks to our relationship with the United States, and that has been deployed not just in the area of the Gaza Strip, but even in the Tel Aviv area, as we prepare for a possible attack. There are trip, school trips canceled in the area around the Gaza Strip. There's a bracing that you feel in Israel for the possibility of some kind of an attack from the Gaza Strip. Now, why? Where is that coming from? So as you mentioned, there were tire tunnels that are being dug from the Gaza Strip into Israel, where they literally dig these highly technologically advanced tunnels to have terrorists come through. The tunnels appear in Israel in neighborhoods. And the goal is to either murder people or kidnap women, children, who knows what, and Israel destroyed one of these tunnels, and through the grace of God, there were seven terrorists in the tunnel at the time, something which it seems Israel was unaware of, and they were killed. And we now have the bodies of these terrorists, and the Islamic Jihad on the Gaza Strip is demanding the return of these bodies, and they're saying that uh, Israel is going to pay the price for this. And what's amazing th- th- to think about when telling this story is that we went to war in Gaza three years ago, and they're still holding up the bodies of Israeli soldiers from that time that were killed and yet they have the nerve to say they're going to attack us because we're holding on to these terrorists who were killed in these tunnels so we are bracing ourselves for what might be a round of fighting uh, certainly Israel uh, hopes that won't happen but if we have to we will do as we always do uh, whatever is necessary to defend ourselves and our people
1: the terrorist group known as Hamas, that is the political ruler of the Gaza Strip, as you say, since the summer of 2014, has been holding two bodies of Israeli soldiers who were killed in this military attack. Their names are Hadar Goldin and Oran Shaul. And Israel, of course, and their families especially, want their bodies returned for a proper burial. The Rulers of Hamas in Gaza have refused to send their bodies back. And at the same time, Islamic Jihad, which is another terrorist organization in Gaza is trying to sneak in terrorists to attack civilians in Israel proper using these tunnels. So it is quite justified. Now, I'm a former army officer. You're a former Knesset member. So we both know a little bit about politics and military strategy and all of these things. But it is a quite justified attack on behalf of the Israeli military to destroy these tunnels. Now... We never revel in the loss of any human life, but there is the time for protecting innocence, and that's the strategy and the rationale behind destroying the tunnels is the Israeli military and government are charged with protecting your own people.
2: Exactly. I mean, imagine uh, people living in Texas for a moment. If is there, if the United States was in a war situation with Mexico, and they were aware that Mexico was digging tunnels into cities in Texas uh, in order to have terrorists come through and murder or kidnap uh, innocent civilians, you can only imagine what the United States would do. And this is what we're doing in this situation. Just imagine for a moment a military operation by the United States where U.S. soldiers, God forbid, are killed. And the enemy holds on to those bodies for who knows what kind of ransom, what the United States would do to, to, to make sure that those soldiers' bodies are brought home for proper burial. And uh, if they did destroy one of those tunnels and there were soldiers that were being held for ransom in some other countries and there were terrorists that were killed in those tunnels – the United States would not be very quick to give those bodies back. And that's the situation that Israel's in. And as you mentioned, uh, if there is some kind of acceleration uh, with Islamic Jihad and real attacks towards Israel, we'll have no choice uh, but to defend ourselves. So the people of Israel, uh, Pastor Graham, are are bracing themselves. Uh, It's also a time for prayer. And we certainly reach out to our friends all over the world and ask uh, for their help in praying for us in this time. The last thing we want is any kind of a military uh, exercise, and we hope that it just all uh, calms down. But it's important for people to know what the background is, to know that it's justified, uh, self-defense, and the importance of prayer at this critical
1: time. And expanding the idea of terrorism in Israel just for a moment, I have a friend who lives near the Gaza Strip. And one time I asked him, why don't you move To a safer place somewhere else in Israel where you're not so close to those who hate you. And he gave a profound answer. He said, first of all, I'm not going to move because this is my home and I get to pick where I live. No one else gets to pick where I live. And the second answer he gave was, if we move from here and I go to the north, they'll just want to attack us from the north. If I go toward the Jordan River, they'll just want to attack us from the east. If I move toward the south, maybe from the Sinai Peninsula, they'll want to attack us. So it's not that we're going to avoid people hating us and wanting to hurt us no matter where we choose to live. That is
2: true. And uh, as I mentioned, we're even setting up these Iron Dome batteries in Tel Aviv, which is the heart and center Of Israel geographically, uh, and and it's important people to understand that. We'll be attacked uh, wherever. And it's also important to remind all the listeners that Israel uh, is no longer in the Gaza Strip. We left the Gaza Strip in 2005. Hamas had the opportunity to set up a beautiful country there and instead has chosen to use all the aid they've been given internationally to set up an, a, a terrorist infrastructure to just attack Israel. And, and this is something which uh, people have to understand the context. Uh, it's not an area where the Israeli military is present. And instead of helping their people, two million citizens who are in need, desperate need of aid, they're focused on uh, trying to destroy Israel. And like I said, with God's help, we will we will fight that off, and we will uh, continue to defend ourselves and, and, and make sure that Israel remains a Jewish state, and a state where all faiths can worship freely, and not some kind of uh, Islamic terrorist state.
1: And we do want to get into the parashah, the Torah portion, for Bible study in just a moment, but... I'll be back in the land in a couple of weeks. Of course, you live there now full time in Israel. And so while there is a threat of attack right now, there's always a threat of attack. And yet your kids are going to school and you're going to ball games and you're going out to dinner at restaurants and life must and does go on for you.
2: Absolutely. Uh, n- nobody really changes anything. Uh, you're cautiously watching what's happening, um, but uh, life continues as usual. Children going to school. And like I said, there was some caution regarding to going to certain specific areas where there were some school trips that were scheduled. But yes, life goes on as usual, regular daily schedule. And uh, that includes prayer and includes uh, you know, turning to God and, 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 and asking for protection and uh, defense. But yes, uh, that's the people of Israel. Israel. That's our story. Remember, you know, we, we have this, uh, news now of possible attacks on Islamic shihad, but we're braced for attacks at all time. We have Hezbollah in the north with uh, 100,000 rockets that can hit anywhere in Israel, ISIS creeping up on our, our eastern border uh, towards the northeast, Hamas, as we mentioned, from the Gaza Strip, and Palestinian terrorists that can strike at any time. And we continue to live, we continue to live our lives, we continue to be strong and reaffirm our connection uh, to this land, and not running anywhere, not hiding anywhere, and just shut what a great country can do in terms of what we're producing for the world, day-to-day living, families raising their children in the face of all the evil that we're surrounded with.
1: Each week here, for our listeners, the pastor and the rabbi, talk about the weekly Torah portion. In Hebrew it's called the parashah, the Bible reading that goes on every Shabbat, every Sabbath weekend in a synagogue around the world that unifies the Jewish people together. This week's parashah is from Genesis 25 verse 19 through Genesis 28 verse 9. The Hebrew name is Toldat, which means generations or descendants, and it comes from the first passage of the scripture talks about the generations of the family members of the patriarchs and this specifically talks about the generations that came after Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael and moving forward. And then it talks about the generations of Isaac specifically, who was the son of Abraham And Isaac had two sons that were twins, and we're going to talk about them as we move forward. Rabbi, before we get specifically into this story, again, remind our especially American Christian audience about the unifying power of studying the same passage every week together.
2: It's the most incredible thing. You have Jews all around the world, uh, and this has been for thousands of years. And every single Sabbath, we sit down together together and we study the same exact portion. It's read in the synagogue. Families discuss the stories and the lessons at their Sabbath tables, and it really does bring together uh, the Jewish people in an incredible way uh, to know that Everywhere around the world, everyone is studying the same thing, is talking about the same messages, learning the same stories, really creates a unifying force, which is special in the sense it's almost this difficult to describe that I can talk to a family member or friend or colleague somewhere else around the world and share our insights that we had from the previous Sabbath because we're all studying the exact same section of the Torah, of the Bible, and uh, you see sort of the wisdom of the tradition as it brings us all together.
1: We mentioned that this Torah portion begins in Genesis 25, verse 19, and it talks about the generations of Isaac, who was Abraham's son. And Isaac has a wife named Rebekah. Rebekah prayed for the Lord to give her children, and she does conceive twin boys in her womb. And here's a powerful verse that begins our conversation. It's Genesis 25, verse 23. The Lord said to Rebekah, "'Two nations are in your womb.'" Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, Rabbi, I'm going to ask you first to comment on the two nations are in your womb portion of the story, but also the fact that this, I believe, is a demonstration of God's sovereignty, God's omniscience. That's a big fancy word that means he knows everything. Because before these two babies were born, and obviously before their descendants were born, God is already prophesying what will happen with the generations to come when He says the older will serve the younger. So talk about those two statements: two nations and the older serving the younger.
2: Sure, there's no doubt that God is revealing things that are going to take place uh, in the future, where you'll have stronger powers and weaker powers, and but God is setting up the scenario that even if the Jewish people are weaker in number, or even weaker in actual physical strength, there's a spiritual dimension here. And this is the whole notion of our coming and, and being the, the chosen people, not chosen in the sense of higher level, but chosen in the sense of we're the ones who bring God uh, to the world, as we see through the advent of the Bible and and certainly the Judeo-Christian ethic. And that's what he's talking about over here, that the, the world will be separated into two different uh, entities, one where you have a nation that's the people of God, the chosen nation, and then the rest of mankind, which also is supposed to serve God and also supposed to be spiritual, and they connect to that spirituality through the younger, through the weaker, so to speak. And that's really the prophecy of the relationship of, of the people of Israel and uh, the rest of the world. And it's really set out from the beginning in this way, that physical strength doesn't necessarily mean leadership. And we focus more on the internal and the spiritual. And that's what's set up in the Jacob and Esau relationship, which comes through this prophecy. Does Christianity talk about uh, this verse or anything related to uh, that relationship?
1: There is the understanding of God's choosing the Jewish people. And I'm often asked, why did God choose the Jews and not the Hittites or the Moabites or the Edomites or all the other groups? And the first answer is God chose the Jews because God chose the Jews. It was his sovereign right. It was not something that, that your people earned. It's not something that your people asked for. It was God's choosing. And again, I use the words sovereignty and omniscience earlier. And he chose them and he made a covenant. And we say a lot in our church that God makes promises and he keeps promises. And we're talking about the patriarchs of the faith, in this case, Abraham and Isaac, and now Jacob, the third generation, that God repeatedly said, I have made a covenant with you, or I will give your descendants this land, or I will never leave you or forsake you. And when I have my teachings for our church and I talk about God making a covenant, I say that in many cases, a covenant is a two-way arrow, meaning an arrow with the, the arrowhead going on both ends of the line. If Dove sells me a car then we made a covenant that I paid him for the car and it's a two-way agreement. But in the scriptures, when God says, I make a covenant, it's a one-way arrow because God makes the promises. And in this case, he said, two peoples, two groups will come out of you. But the younger, whose name would be Jacob, the younger of the twins, besides Esau, would rule over the older. The older twin was Esau. The younger twin was named jacob and our bible readers will know that jacob's name is later changed to israel l being one of the hebrew names for god israel meaning the one who struggles with god or wrestles with the lord and so we understand this as a sign of god's choosing whom he chooses and sometimes we don't understand why but he makes his promise and he never breaks his promise
2: that's a fascinating, fascinating insight. And, and, I, and I, I so appreciate the notion of not necessarily understanding why, not understanding why it has to be that way, but just accepting. Whatever uh, God has uh, decided, and that's certainly an important tenet of our faith as well, as we you know even bring it back to our uh, discussion before of uh, you know why do we have this situation where we have missile threats and terror tunnels, and, and you try to understand that we don't understand uh, the ways of God and why God allows things to happen as they do. We can only try to grow from those experiences and recognize and, and accept that it's uh, what God has chosen uh, to happen or allowed to happen. Uh, uh, for the best, and this is our approach, and that's a, a a fantastic perspective to take on this story of these two brothers as well, where you have the younger one surpassing, so to speak, the the older one. And by the way, you have that theme throughout the Bible of younger siblings, surpassing the older. You have it with Moses and Aaron. Uh, You certainly have it with Joseph and his brothers uh, later on. And time and time again, you see that notion. And the amazing trait, and I'm jumping ahead now, is to be like an Aaron who accepts that his younger brother is going to be the leader with great happiness and accepts that that's the will of God. And if that's the will of God, then that's what good is.
1: I use those words, and I'll repeat them again, sovereignty and omniscience. For our Christian listeners, they will know the book of Romans chapter 9 says in verse 10 and following, not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand Not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said of her, the older will serve the younger. So the Apostle Paul of the New Testament, referencing back to this parasha, this Genesis 25 story, is already saying it's not something that Jacob or Esau did, good or bad, but it was the pre-planned will of God.
2: And I will say that in Jewish tradition, we do believe that Esau still had the... um, free will and the choice to turn out differently than he does in the story, and if that would be the case, there would still be ways of understanding this prophecy uh, and this foretelling from God in terms of their relationship, and there was uh, a lot of space in there for it to turn out in a few different ways. God set a certain concept in motion, and Esau still could have found his place within that system, yes, with uh, Jacob as the leader, but he still could have been part of that Uh, children of Isaac, so to speak, and been part of uh, that tradition. Sadly, he chose not to, uh, and that's where the free will plays in, even within the context of the decrees that we see from God.
1: So let's continue with the Bible story. We have Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older brother. Jacob is the younger brother. He is therefore not to receive the birthright and the blessing of the firstborn. Esau is... But they move forward to their adult years, and Esau is the outdoorsman. He's the hunter. He's called Harry, and Jacob is described as the indoors person. The, the Bible says he likes to stay around the tents. He was also favored by Rebecca, the mother. And so when Isaac, the dad, was old and blind and probably couldn't hear very well, there was a scheme or a strategy set up between Mom, Rebecca, and son Jacob that he would put on animal skins like his arms were hairy and he would go and he would receive the birthright because Isaac the dad thought he was the older brother Esau and what happened was that Jacob also saw Esau coming back from the hunting trip he was very hungry and Jacob had created the stew lentil stew or the soup and Esau was rash and emotional and said I'm so starving, I want something to eat. And Jacob said, well, give me your birthright and you can have the stew. And Esau made an emotional choice and maybe an irrational choice to give up the birthright for some stew. So after both of these parts of the story, The birthright is given to Jacob even though he's not the firstborn and the blessing from the father is given because he's sneaking or deceiving or pretending to be Esau. And so my question for my rabbi friend is this doesn't appear very upright on either brother's part that Esau was irrational and didn't care as much about the birthright as he should. Jacob seemed to try to pretend or sneak in front of the father who was elderly. Tell us how you see the spiritual conditions of both brothers.
2: So here's the incredible thing Jacob, through his mother, is aware of the fact that he's the one who's supposed to be the son to carry on the spiritual traditions of Abraham and Isaac. And Isaac, for whatever reason, and we can have our own analysis about that, doesn't see it that way. But but you're faced with this conflict. On the one hand, you know what the will of God is, but here you have the situation where the father who's giving the blessing seems to be unaware of the exact plan, and you have this conflict. And Jacob chooses to follow the path of God, in this case, with with the message which is clear to him uh, from his mother, who is also a prophetess. And he carries out this, we'll use the term scheme, in order for the will of God to come out. And, and you know, sometimes people can take a story like this and use it the wrong way and say, well, then you can justify anything and say that you're doing it for God. We have to remember, these are people, we're dealing with prophets, who had the clear word of God and the clear dictate of God. And that's what they're responding to. And the message is when you have that word of God and you have that clear prophecy, uh, there are times that you have to stand up and act. You know, we were talking about before about uh, even in the face of a a world that's telling you not to. And that's very much the story of Israel, by the way. Uh, You know, the story of a world which rejects our right to this land. And yet in the face of that, we stood up and we followed God. And we said, uh, we're going to fight for this land. And we went to war. Some people could say, "What, what right did we have to be here? be fighting go to the six day war for a moment we were uh, be- surrounded on all sides by enemies that were talking about destroying us and we attacked first in June 1967 we attacked first as a preemptive strike is that the right thing is that the wrong thing when you know that this is your land when you know that this is the place where you're supposed to live and it's been pre- in the prophecies and in the Bible and it's a conviction of thousands of years you have to do uh, take certain actions sometimes even if you don't feel that it's the ideal we'd rather not be at war we'd rather not be attacking we'd rather not be in the situation, but this is what we have to do in order to take our stake in our biblical and ancestral homeland, and in life sometimes also. There are times that there could be complete moral clarity about something, and you still might have to take certain actions that you're not comfortable with. In order to fulfill those, you're called upon to do that, and that's one of the things that we learn from this story, even in the face of an Isaac, who again, the Bible makes it clear that he was elderly and might have been losing some of those faculties and capacities. That's not said in any disrespect, and therefore Jacob had to stand up and do something about it. What does the Christian uh, tradition say about this story and its lessons?
1: I think that we learn that God's plan is bigger than our plan, that God's plan will be done. I already read to our listeners the verse that stated, Before the boys were born, the Lord said the older would serve the younger. So God's will is going to be accomplished. Now, our responsibility as followers of God is to seek to be righteous, seek to be biblical, seek to be godly, and not try to achieve spiritual results by unrighteous means or by human scheming. Instead, we should seek to learn the will of God and ask how the Lord should seek for this result to occur. But I want to go back to a word that's big in the Christian world. In fact, it's what I'm teaching on in our church services right now, and that's the idea of grace. And in the Christian world, we define grace as unmerited favor, undeserved love of God given to us. So in this case, I would say that Jacob received the grace of God because God's favor was placed upon him when he didn't deserve it, either because it happened before he was born and he could do nothing, or even in what appears to be, and you could argue, is a bit of of trickery or scheming, yet the Lord's grace was bigger than his human efforts, and God chooses to place grace and to give grace even to those who do not deserve it. And I, as a follower of Jesus live by the fact that i cannot earn the grace of god but he gives it to those who are willing to humbly seek after him
2: that's certainly a beautiful insight and the truth is that is very much the message message of jacob jacob as you described earlier you had esau who was this hunter very involved go-getter physical world leader king you might say and jacob was the simple son who was sitting in the tent being spiritual and that is what ultimately brought him. And I'll use that terminology of the grace. That's the leadership that God wants to see. It's not the the grandiose physical human being, but it's the one who's highly connected spiritually that's able to truly lead. Because that person leads with the help of God. If we're looking for a leader who's leading on his own, we're in real trouble. Because human beings with all of our failings, we can't really count on any leader. We need a leader who is plugged in spiritually. And uh, you know, I always took comfort growing up in the United States, seeing presidents talking about uh, their prayers, uh, talking about how they re- rely on those prayers, and it's a critical point. I remember President Bush in some interview, President Reagan a different time, uh, talking about their prayers, helping them get through their day. That's something which is always very humbling, but also inspirational. And that's very much the story here. You had this simple son sitting in the tent, and God realizes that needs to be the leader. He needs to carry on the traditions, and, and God makes that happen, and, and, and almost takes Jacob to the point of doing things that the simple, honest Jacob would never even be involved with, but but just to make it happen, however it has to happen, and our accepting of that as part of God's
1: plan. In the Christian teaching and in commentaries, the choice that Esau made to take the soup over the birthright, often given as an example of a, an ungodly choice who put their physical desires over more important things, their physical pleasures over spiritual blessing. Is that how you see this?
2: Very much so. If you look at our tradition, especially through the Talmud and the uh, oral tradition in the, in the Jewish faith, there's a lot more described about Esau as a person who is very much living in the present, very much the... Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. We're going to die. He even says uh, in the verse itself, he actually says outright, He says, Why do I need. Uh, this birthright. It does nothing for me. It accomplishes nothing for me because I'm going to to pass away. It's in chapter 25, uh, verse 32 in the Hebrew I'm going to go and pass away. Why do I need this spiritual birthright? So it was very much a physical existence and a focus on the physical where one just casts off uh, the spiritual. And that very much defined the difference. Between Jacob and Esau and from our perspective that defines the difference between people who live a life of faith. It doesn't mean you can't be involved in the physical world but it's a question of what's the focus and what's the primary and what's it ultimately all about and that's what Jacob clearly understood and that's why uh, Jacob is given the birthright and why Jacob is given the leadership to be the father of the tribes of Israel leading eventually to the people of Israel and that's why ultimately uh, we are the people of Israel as you mentioned. Uh, is named also becomes Israel we are the children of Israel Jacob is the ultimate forefather who really captured this focus on spirituality while being in the physical world as opposed to a focus on the physicality and a complete neglect of the spiritual
1: what about rebecca in the story rebecca was the mom of both jacob and esau But she showed favoritism, it's clear, to Jacob. We have that in the Joseph story as well, where Joseph was the favorite son. And that causes a lot of conflict in families in biblical days and even today when parents are not equal in their treatment and love for children. What do you think about this maternal partiality that Rebecca shows?
2: Well, first of all, we don't have a problem, and as mentioned by a lot of the classic commentaries, in learning uh, from failings or flaws of our great matriarchs and patriarchs. They're human beings, and they can have those kinds of failings. But, and we don't have a problem in any way uh, saying that we can learn from those mistakes. That's part of the Bible's there to guide us in that way as well. Uh, so that's part one. Part two over here, though, specifically, the love which she had towards Jacob was the result of seeing that spirituality and recognizing he's the one who's going to carry on the tr- traditions and we have to make sure that we bring him up in the proper way uh, towards that. But it, it, without a doubt, a lesson that we can learn from throughout the Bible is, and it's a numerous stories, of the importance of parents not favoring uh, one child over another for whatever the reasons are, and making sure that the love is expressed equally, and acceptance of who they are, uh, regardless of how they develop, is a critical, critical theme, uh, which has a very important impact on how the children turn out. And the Bible shows us examples where children did not turn out properly, largely because of failed parenting. We see that in the five books of Moses, we see it in the prophets as well, as those stories play out. Another very important lesson, for sure.
1: Our discussion has been on the weekly Torah portion. In Hebrew, the name is Toldat, which means generations or descendants. And it's from Genesis chapters 25 through 28. My rabbi friend Dove Lippmann, always great to speak with you. Shabbat Shalom, my friend.
2: Shabbat Shalom to you and to all the listeners. And let's hear good news. And please pray for Israel in the current situation. Your prayers are appreciated. And we join together in that effort.
0: Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to Himself this week.